The Lord calls us to worship this morning from Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. Amen. to you today as the only God in all of the universe, the one who has made all things, and you have made us for your pleasure that we might sing your praises today gathered as your people. Lord, I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit, that we would sing praises to you in a satisfying and pleasing way. And Lord, as your word says, may we exalt the name of the Lord Jesus alone and him only in holiness and righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would be with us today by your spirit that you would comfort us, hold us up, be with those who are discouraged or brokenhearted. Lord, may we all find our rest in you today, this Sabbath that you have given. And Lord, we also join our hearts together now and pray together as you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to be reciting together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in the hymnal if you'd like to look at it. I'm going to begin by asking you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
he descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him. Amen. Let's continue to worship now, singing hymn number 101, Come Thou Almighty King.
I'm going to pick up a little bit where I left off last week, well, two weeks ago, I suppose, in some of my questions to you. And I want to see if anybody can remember something that I mentioned to you last week about Thomas in the Bible. What was it that I, do you remember what I said about Thomas in the Bible? What did he come to Jesus with? Doubts and questions. And I told you last week that it's okay to come to Jesus with your questions. It's okay to come to Him and ask Him to show you Himself. Today I want to talk to you about another side of that coin, about bringing your questions. It's okay to have questions and thoughts in your mind, but there's also a verse in the book of Isaiah that says that in confidence and rest is your salvation. It's okay sometimes to not have all the answers to every question. There are things in your mind that you are thinking that you just need to work out. But there are times, too, when it's okay to lay those down. Do your mom and dad ever tell you, and maybe it's just at our home, but do you ever have to say, your parents say to you, it's just because I'm telling you that it's this way? Does that ever, does that ever happen? Nope. I see some no's. Sometimes life is that way. You're not going to get every question answered. And mom and dad may say, it's just because it's how I'm telling you. Trust me and believe. It's true. I'm not trying to deceive you. I'm not trying to keep anything from you. Be confident in what I'm telling you. Know that I love you and that I care for you. And just rest. Contentment is something that, if we could go around the room this morning, contentment is something that is very difficult to grasp and is very fleeting. It runs away very quickly. And I want to encourage you to rest in the Lord Jesus. He says that He came and offered Himself a sacrifice for our sins. And you might think, well, how in the world is that possible? How is it that Jesus died and my sins can be forgiven? That He rose from the grave and I can go to heaven? And one simple answer to that is, because the Bible says that it's so. And you can rest and be confident knowing that He does what He says and that He is good. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank You that You do offer us to come into Your presence in humility and reverence and come with our questions. Lord, I pray for our children, our covenant children that You have given to us. Lord, that You would give them a sense of rest and quiet confidence in You. That though they may not have all the answers to every question, that in You, the quietness of our heart is good for us. That in You, resting in You is a blessing. And Lord, I pray for our children that as they learn questions and answers, even in the catechisms about You, Lord, that they would rest in their hope in knowing You. In Your name, Amen. This morning for our responsive reading, we're going to be reading Psalm 66 together. It's on page 897 in the hymnal. Excuse me, 807. Apologize. Page 807, Psalm 66. I'll begin with the light portion. Please respond out loud together with the bold. Shout with joy to God, all the earth. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what 
He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in Him. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You let men ride over our heads. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill, fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what He has done for me. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Let's stand together as we continue to worship, singing hymn number 108, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right.
pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now as your children. We come to you in prayer, bringing the, the thoughts and meditations of our hearts, the events of the past week behind us. Lord, some of us, our hearts are very heavy and weighed down with the cares of this world for family and for the events that we see happening in the news, things that happen so quickly we can hardly keep up. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in our griefs, that you would comfort us in our own individual moments of pain, that whether we are up in the middle of the night as the night watchman, counting the hours and the minutes as they go by, Lord, we pray that you would be with us by your Spirit, that we would cling very closely to the promise that you say you never leave your children and you never forsake them. Lord, I pray for those in our body who are struggling, if they are struggling mentally or emotionally or spiritually, that you would be very near to them, Lord, that you would hold them up by your righteous right hand, that you would comfort the brokenhearted and those who grieve. Lord, I pray for those among us whose faith is weak and who look at the promises and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would strengthen us by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us also to be able to, by your grace, turn away from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you, who have not yet placed their faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for your work around the world that you are doing in sharing the gospel through others. Lord, I pray that you would use missionaries, even the missionaries that we support here at Lebanon, that you would use them for the sake of the glory of Jesus, that the gospel would be spread, and that real people, people who apart from knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, will die and go to hell and they will suffer forever. Lord, we pray that you would make the gospel effective and powerful as it is, and that you would use it for the sake of the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and whose name we pray. Amen.
want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Let me say a brief word of prayer. Our Father, I pray that you would be with us now, that you would open our minds and our hearts as we look at your word. Lord, we have our Bibles open and our hearts open. We pray that you would speak to us in the power of your spirit through your word, that we would see and hear and believe the gospel, that they would be words of life to us, and that we would glory in the Lord Jesus Christ alone in this time. In your name, amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Judge not that you not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. As we start chapter 7 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today, Jesus shifts from talking about the disciples' special relationship to God as our Heavenly Father to God as our Judge. As you know, a judge is someone to whom you give an account. You answer for specific actions. And in the case of our Heavenly Father, we also answer for specific attitudes as well. In this passage, Jesus speaks to both actions and attitudes, especially related to how we view one another in the church. It answers these questions, and I think we have to answer these questions as we look at this passage. Are there shades of meaning for the word judging? Does Jesus expect that we would be able to judge things between one another. And how do we do that? Perhaps you or someone you love has been on the receiving end of especially harsh judgment from others, and particularly others in the church, those who are professing Christians. Please don't shut down or plug your ears today. Hear what God's Word says about this. There is in God's Word, as in every day, as we open it together, there is a word for each of us. May He give us faith to hear it and hope to believe in it together. As we look at this passage of Scripture, I want to answer three questions. First, what does the word judge mean as Jesus is using it here? Secondly, does Jesus expect us as His children to judge between one another? And lastly, how do we do it? So number one, what does it mean to judge? What is Jesus saying here? To judge can mean to discern or to judge judicially, in the case of an actual office, to be judgmental, or to condemn. Some have taken this passage to mean that we should never make a judgment at all of other people, especially other people's choices or actions. And I could come up with at least four objections for why we should never, especially as Christians, ever judge one another. Maybe not knowing everything about it, And this would be legitimate in every case. You're never going to know everything about the whole story that you're not involved in. 
And as it involves other people, you will never know everything about their hearts. You're just simply not able to read their minds or their hearts and what their thoughts and motives are. So that's one objection. You're not going to know everything. Number two, I'm not qualified to be able to make a judgment about these things. I'm not an expert. I couldn't possibly tell you the difference between one thing or the other in this particular case. And it's not my place to do it. I'm not an expert. Number three, it's not loving to judge other people. Love lets people be who they are, some might say. It's unloving to someone to tell them that they're wrong. Lastly, it's not my job. I'm not God. It's not my place to say whether it's right or wrong. For them, it might be right. Even if for me, it seems like it's not. Those are four objections I could think of. Maybe you could think of others. Why we shouldn't judge one another. But in this kind of relativistic thinking, the logical conclusion of such an attitude that I can't say anything, it might be okay for them. The logical conclusion then of that kind of attitude is to treat everything good and evil as if they are alike and regard moral distinctions as a matter of indifference. There isn't a right or a wrong. It's only how you feel or how it came about in your life. What happened in your life circumstances for why this is right for you. And who am I to say anything about it? In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, God says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It seems from God's word, and we will see it today, that there is a heart of discernment in humility and love that does make a judgment about certain things, not in a way to condemn others, but because there is good and evil. There is right and wrong in the world that we live in. Jesus here is expressly forbidding His people from an overly critical, judgmental spirit that looks down on from their long nose of self-righteousness to the disheveled lives of other people around us with specific disdain. I believe Jesus does condemn being super critical, being super judgmental, and always finding fault with something that someone else does. There is something wrong with that. For the person who says, look at those sinners and all their sinning. Or, I'm standing on the side of truth. God has enrolled me in the truth brigade. I'm responsible to point it out to people. It's my job. It's what I'm supposed to do. And I'm standing for the truth when I tell them. But do you tell them in love? In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, in the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, do you remember what the Pharisee prayed? As he went to the temple, he prayed, Lord, I thank You that I'm not like these other men. And Jesus was telling this parable because there were some people who it seemed trusted in themselves. They believed they were righteousness because they looked at their own record and said, Before God, I am absolved. And thank You, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And you could fill in the blank with anything else. Anything that might seem to be disdainful to you. So what does it mean to judge? I do believe there is a sense of discernment by God's Spirit that He intends for us to use, even to make judgment about things that happen in front of us, things that happen in the world, things that happen in our own hearts, in our homes, or even in our church family. But there is also a condemning heart, one that is always super critical, 
and always trying to find something wrong. And if someone does happen to shed light on something in our heart, then sometimes if we have this inclination, we will turn right away and hope to find something else in them so that the spotlight can be turned around. Certainly it can't be on us. So secondly, does Jesus expect us as God's people to judge, to make a judgment about one another? I'm going to say yes and no. No, Jesus does not expect for you or I to sit on the seat of judgment against a brother or sister as though we know all motives, understand all thoughts and intentions of their hearts, and are able to fully and finally pass judgment on them. That is not a position that the Lord Jesus has put out, a job description hoping someone will fill it. He fills that role. He is the righteous judge, the only one, the God of all the earth, who will do right. And He's not looking for anyone to take His seat. So no, that's not your role and it's not mine. John chapter 8, verse 7. When some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, they brought a lady who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And it says that knowing the law of Moses, they brought this lady to Jesus and they threw her at His feet and they said, Lord, we we caught her in the very act. The law of Moses says that we're to stone her, but what do you say? They weren't interested in righteousness. They were interested in catching Jesus so that they could find fault with Him if He answered one way or the other. They had a plan. Either way, if He says no, then He's lax about the law of Moses. If He says yes, He's too harsh. And so what does Jesus say? He confounds them. He says, He of you who is without sin among you, let Him throw the first stone. And it says that none of them did and they walked away. In Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, it says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account to God Himself. Yes, you and I are supposed to be able to, and we do, in fact, discern between right and wrong. To recognize sin and call it what it is. To abhor evil and to praise righteousness in our lives, in the society that we live in, in our brothers and sisters in the church. And some might object to this even still and say, but aren't we all sinners? Shouldn't the truly righteous be the ones who make these kinds of decisions? Who is the arbiter of the Christian conscience? Isn't it supposed to be Scripture alone? Are you saying that someone else should be able to say something and bind my conscience? Well, absolutely not. Our conscience is to be bound to the Word of God alone. But there is also a place, even if we are all sinners, to be walking in love with the Lord and in love with one another and to see something in our brother or sister whom we love and for whom we have taken vows to love and to serve, if we see our brother or sister falling, it behooves us, out of love, to go and speak to them. We're required to do that. The law of love says that we must see the distinction that Jesus is making here in our passage in verse 6. He makes a judgment immediately. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. He mentions dogs. Then later he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. So he's making a judgment. There are some people, it seems, who spiritually act like dogs and pigs. And a dog in this sense is not that cuddly little furry thing that climbs up in your lap and sits there at night and you pat its ears and and rub its head. 
This was a wily beast who ran the streets, who trampled on the trash heaps of things that were left out in the street. And they were nasty and mean and they gnarled their teeth. And the swine were certainly, they were ceremonially unclean. They were not to be in the presence of God's people. To eat it was also disdainful. And he says, if you cast your pearls before them like food, and they go and take a bite of it, and then they realize this isn't food, and now they're madder twice than they were before, and they come and trample over you. He says, be careful. You have to make a distinction. You do have to use wise judgment and wisdom about how to, whether or not, do something. But see Jesus' words in verses 3 through 5 about specks and planks. Specks and planks are a metaphor in, in this statement of Jesus for sin. Jesus calls someone who doesn't bother with the plank in his own eye a hypocrite. And it's almost fantastical to believe. Can you imagine someone walking up to you in church, maybe tonight, and they walk up and they have a telephone pole in their eye. And they say to you, Oh, brother, oh, sister, it seems there's a little bit of sawdust in the corner of your left eye. Shall I pull it out? It's absurd. You would never allow someone to do that kind of surgery on your eye with a telephone pole hanging out of their own. It's absurd, but that's the point that Jesus is making. And sin affects our sight, does it not? It affects how we see ourselves. It affects how we see other people. Our sin is so powerful that we can be deceived and even learn how to function with sin in our heart and lack of sight truly to see who we are before the Lord. And we begin to believe, I'm living right while we're still in sin. And that others are truly as bad as we think they are. As bad as we think in our minds. We begin to believe that's actually what we see. And that they actually might not be believers at all. We go from bad to worse. We assign truly bad motives to everyone else. Everything they did was on purpose bad. And everything we do, we should be given the benefit of the doubt. And that is the deceptiveness of sin. He also speaks about acting here. For some people, being a Christian is truly an act. That's all that it is. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. You play act. You put on a mask or you put on the clothes and you play the part. For some, being a Christian is that. Because they fear judgment from other people. Or they want to please others so much they need the praise of other people. They spend all of their time and their energy trying to live up to a standard. Hoping that they will get the praise of men or at the very least they won't get the judgment of other people. All the while knowing what's in their heart and knowing that it is the Lord who knows. You can see why this kind of person, a hypocrite, would object so strongly to any kind of judgment from someone else. What do you mean you can say anything about my heart? How could you do that? How could you judge someone who's actually trying? As if entrance to heaven was based on participation alone. I did my best. As if God is standing at the gates of heaven and as we come to Him and having not believed by faith but maybe trying to look like a Christian, He would say, Oh, shucks, well, come on in. Golly gee, I can see that you did your best. Jesus doesn't allow us to come into His heaven except through His blood. Our sin cleansed, our hearts forgiven, repenting in His presence and believing in Him by faith. That's the qualification for entrance into heaven. Not trying hard or doing our best. And think about Nathan and David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1-7. through 7. 
speaking about the deceitfulness of sin and what seems to arise in the heart of someone who is maybe a bit self-righteous or a bit hypocritical. You might remember that David had conspired when he was supposed to be off to war at a time when kings were off to war. He conspired and took another man's wife. And then he decided not to deal with it. He decided to cover it up and have the man killed, the husband killed. Put him on the front lines. He sent instructions. And he, God will take care of this just by process of elimination. He'll be taken care of. And one day Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says to him, I've got a story to tell you, but it's pretty serious. There was a man, a rich man, who had a friend come and visit him. And because he didn't have anything prepared for dinner, he went and stole a lamb, a little ewe lamb, the only one that a poor man had. And he sent it to the cook and said, prepare this for dinner. I've got friends here. He had all of this wealth and all this riches, but he ran to the poor man's and he stole it. And David is incensed in his heart. And he gives a quick judgment. And he says, this man ought to be punished. And it should be severe. And what does Nathan say to him? You are that man. And he knew immediately what Nathan was saying. And I want to think about that passage of Scripture for just a moment. Can you spot what the speck was and what the plank was? What was the speck in the story that Nathan told David? It was the man who stole the other man's little lamb. That was the speck. He killed another man's animal. He took it from him. But what was the plank? What was the beam? The telephone pole-sized thing in David's heart that he had not leveled with that was keeping him from being able to see rightly about life. It was his own sin. Not only had he taken another man's wife, but he decided, I'm going to get rid of him so I don't even have to deal with him either. And because I'm the king, I have the right and the privilege and I have the power to do it, so I will. And what did he say in Psalm in Psalm 52? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this horrible thing in your sight. But it wasn't true. He had also sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and against God's people and against those who were on the front lines. He took advantage of his position, but ultimately he said against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That is the deceptiveness of sin. To believe that we're right and because there is not immediate judgment from God, we must be absolved of what we're doing with our life. Because it seems that He's consenting in our actions, it must be okay. That's part of the deceptiveness of our sin. So lastly, I'm saying that we should be, as God's people, able to do this. We should be able to look at a situation in life. We teach our children this. Look at a situation in life and know what's right and what's wrong. And what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong and there isn't a time when those things should be mixed. We teach our children that. We expect that they will obey and listen and they will choose the right thing, Lord willing, by God's Spirit in them. So how do we do it? I want to give you three ways. Three ways I believe the Scriptures are clear. First, we should do it with God in view. And when I say that we should make a judgment about something, I mean specifically in relation to one another. I'm not speaking about society or things happening on the news or things that you might read in the newspaper. I'm speaking specifically if a brother or sister was walking in sin or it seemed that they were doing something that you know is opposed to the Word of God. How do you go address that? First, I believe we do that with God in view. He is the judge to whom all of us will give an account. And the one from whom we have received, we, as God's people, 
a sinner. We have received grace and mercy. We have sinned in thought, word, and deed many ways over even today. And God has forgiven us and has nailed our sins on the tree to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered on our behalf. He died that we might be forgiven. And we have been declared righteous because of Him and His sacrifice. We have received forgiveness. All the sins that you have committed as a child of the living God, all the sins that you will commit were accounted to Jesus' account. And all of His righteousness was accounted to you. That is the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of the cross, of our salvation. So how do you do this? How do you confront a brother or sister? You do it in love with God in view. Number two, we do it in the church. I don't mean locationally, you come to church and confront someone. I mean it's a, it's a family matter. It's a family matter within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Who are outside the church? Why would you be surprised that those who are unbelievers act as unbelievers? Do you judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, this was a letter that Paul wrote to a very troubled church. They seemed to have things backwards, and they weren't willing to speak to or address things that were taking place in the church. And one of them, chiefly, as it was reported in 1 Corinthians 4, was that a man was sinning sexually. And it was rampantly known in the church, and no one, including the leaders, did anything about it. And he said, you haven't addressed it. You think God approves of it because He hasn't stricken you down in judgment. I'm not there, but I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, humbly, I have already handed this one over to Satan that his heart would be pricked, that his conscience would be pushed by God. And he says, you should do the same thing. You should hand them over to Satan. Now that sounds very harsh. And what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? I believe what Paul is saying is you need to pray and hand them over to the Lord knowing that Satan may buffet their soul. They can't just continue to exist in God's family walking in unrepentant sin. And you are walking in it if you don't address it. Paul is saying this is very serious. You should take this matter extremely seriously. And then in a third letter that he wrote, we only have two. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says the offender should be forgiven. Don't let his his heart be killed with the sorrow that is going on by putting him outside of the church. That was only to be for a time that he would walk in faith and repentance. You need to reaffirm your love for him, lest he be overwhelmed with guilt. First, how do we do this? With God in view. Secondly, we do it in the church. It's It's a matter of family. One another before the Lord. And lastly, we do it in humility and love. This is a posture of our hearts. It must be before the Lord with our brothers and sisters in the family of God. We who know ourselves to be sinners and have received mercy and who so sincerely desire to not see our beloved family hurt or deceived by the wily ways of Satan and his devices. We reach out to our brothers or sisters in love. I'm seeing this in your life and I don't find any joy in it. I don't find any delight But I must tell you that I'm concerned for your soul. I'm not saying it from a place of self-righteousness and I find no delight in it, but I believe that I should out of obedience to the Lord. 
If you come to someone with that kind of brokenness and humility, not thundering at them and stomping your feet and waving your Bible and stomping at it, at them, God's Spirit in them will see that and recognize that. It's a posture of your heart. In the church, it's assumed that you and I will abide by the law of love. We're to be clothed with love one to another and humility. And forgiving one another is actually assumed in the Bible. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Read, read those verses. This means that you and I begin with humility. If I have something to address with you or you have something to address with me, we begin with humility, assuming the best motives of one another to uphold the peace and purity of the church because we made vows to one another to love one another and to use great wisdom in matters of our brothers and sisters. Great discretion must be exercised. The loudest voices are not always right. Some in the sheepfold are not sheep. There are wolves. Paul said there would be. He said there would be. And some are happy to rend the church in the name of a controversy or some current issue. It's better to get everybody riled up and see what happens. It's more entertainment value than it maybe is anything else. But in, I want to read several scriptures with you in closing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Jude chapter, 20, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. You have to make that distinction. You have to see and know whether or not someone is teachable or not. Are they going to hear what I'm saying? Am I going to go and be devoured by a wild dog or a wild pig? Am I going to be casting my pearls before swine? Jesus is saying, you have to make that distinction. But others, it says, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is defiled by the flesh. And lastly, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus says, Judge not, it's not your place or mine to condemn one another. But we absolutely should be able to set aside pride and rely on the Holy Spirit to give us a heart of love for one another, to approach one another in love and humility that our brother or sister might be helped in their fight with sin. Maybe because we have seen it in ourselves, we so clearly see it in others. And may God give you grace and the words to say in the moment when you need to. And may we all be clothed with love and humility, one for another, as it says that we will be in heaven in glory forever with Him. Let us pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, even for words that are difficult and strong. And I'm sure there are other passages, Lord, that we could go to that speak to this. But Lord, I pray that You would build up Your body, the church. That we would first see one another as brothers and sisters. 
and the issues that might come up between us as things that we can talk through, that we can work out, but that first and foremost, perfecting holiness before you and pursuing peace with our brothers and sisters, not being so quick to disagree or draw lines where they don't need to be drawn. Lord, I thank you that you have loved us, that you have shed your love abroad in our hearts, that we may be forgiven of our sins, and that you, Lord Jesus, are the righteous judge. You will do right. Lord, may we do all of this for your glory. In your name, amen. Let's stand together as we continue to worship, singing hymn number 310, Rejoice, the Lord is King. as we take an offering to the glory of God.
us pray. Father, we thank You for the beauty of the music that we have just heard. And Lord, we pray that You would make it the melody of our hearts that we would delight to give freely, not under compulsion, but because You have so freely given to us, we can return with joy but a portion of what You have given us. Lord, we pray that You would use our tithes and our offerings for the sake of Your glory and for the spread of the Gospel, that real people who do not know You would hear the Gospel and believe and that they would be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and moved into the kingdom of your glorious light. In your name, amen. Next week we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and tonight we are gathering at 6 to adults to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, we'll be beginning where we left off a couple weeks ago. Receive the benediction of our Lord. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of an everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.